Hi, I'm Lawrence Diamond. And I'm Bob Matthews. And this is The Process of Production. Mate, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been one of those weeks that I think like everyone has Mm. where everything's just a bit sticky and life gets in the way and it kind of gets to Thursday or Friday and you're like, I haven't really moved the needle on any of these projects or I think probably three or four years ago that would have really panicked me and I'd have like, it would have bummed me out. But I just tried to turn it into a bit of a positive and really looked at things that I could do when maybe my mind wasn't creative or my, you know, the people I'm working with weren't at their desks or studios or whatever it is in this world. And I just pulled up a few plugins that maybe I'd wanted to really get deep into and and just spent some time fiddling with them and learning them. That's good. Yeah, it was good. And another thing I really like to do when I'm maybe having weeks like that is just dive into my samples and maybe some projects and just organize it all a bit so that next time I do sit down, everything's at my fingertips ready to go. Yes, that's a good use of your time when, yeah, you may be not feeling 100% creative. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's such such an important thing that when you are feeling creative, you've got the tools at your fingertips and things are arranged in such a way that you know where to find stuff. And because it can be su- such a buzzkill scrolling through a huge folder of samples or a list of plugin presets to try and find something that inspires you. So what exactly did you do? Well, one thing I'm sure a lot of people are using things like Splice and often I use that as a kind of pop to, like someone will be like, I'd love a sound like this and I'll go in and I'll download 10 or 15 options and I'll fly it into the project and I'll find one that works. But there's often three or four that I'm in my head, I'm like, oh, that could be a starter for something or, um, and that folder's just like all over the show. So I I went and like marked some that I thought could be good starters and maybe even chucked a couple into projects. But I also just arranged all my folders into sort of sample packs that I'm liking. And I was also thinking about while I was doing this, you've found a quite a useful plugin to sort of do this for you. Yeah, we were just talking about this the other day. I I feel like this whole thing of like how, how you organize all your tools is kind of an evolving process as a producer and you kind of... You want to add new things, but not too quickly because mm. it can affect your workflow. And something I've been struggling with recently is like drum samples, basically, sure. and 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 how and how to access them quickly. Because in the first few years I was a producer, I just used Ultrabeat on Logic for my drum machine, and I was happy with the samples you get sure. with Logic. I used them for years, and and you can go for a long time just using those. But as time went on and you collect more samples, I was kind of struggling to keep track of everything and reach for it quickly, and also just when you don't know exactly what you want, browsing through a big finder folder mm. of 200 snares is just the most uninspiring thing in the world. Like, And I find you get caught between that that those two stools of you don't want the artist to be sitting in the room with you while you scroll through snares, no. but you also don't want the drum sound to be uninspiring. So I heard about this thing called um, XO from XLN Audio. They're the company that makes addictive keys and addictive drums and sure. all those kind of plugins. And it's basically a plugin that maps all your drum samples in this big kind of space cloud of stars universe and it's yeah it's it's got all these little dots and they all represent your samples and basically it kind of reads all your samples and maps them based on sound and groups them by similarity so you can drag your cursor across this massive cloud and say you start in the bottom left it'll be like kick and then you go (laughs) and you can just kind of like wave your mouse across the thing and and just stop when you hear something cool and then even if that's not quite right there's another button that's that's kind of skips through similar sounding ones i just found it a much more inspiring user interface you were working on it in a session i was working on with you and 
even just the the process of watching a producer do it was much more interesting than watching a producer scroll through a finder menu hitting spacebar. Yeah, it, it looks super cool. Should probably say at this point we're not we're not sponsored to tell you about this plugin. No. We just it was just a really it really opened that world up, and it was one of those things where I was like, that really does change how you might work. I, yeah, I, I recommend looking at it. It's not going to be for everyone, but it comes with some good drum samples as well um, if you don't necessarily have a, a, a an exhaustive collection already. Have you seen the Timberland Masterclass? I have watched that, yeah. I found yeah. it fascinating how his engineer was saying, Timberland samples, he's just worked through them over and over, and when they come into a project, I don't process them i don't treat them they are right he's got his saturation he's got his reverb and he just bangs them in and i think obviously me spending six hours last tuesday when i was feeling a bit uh, slow doing that isn't yeah. getting me to timberland level but i think the more you do that the more you get to know them the more yeah. you know your sample banks the more you work on them the more you make them sound amazing out the box the more fun you can have just putting them in and something like yes. that that you're talking about from excel and audio that that makes that step easier right it does, yeah. And, but so, something else that I think is worth saying is sometimes it can be a bit limiting having too many options and mm. it's worth limiting your palette a bit and finding sounds that you really love uh, that work for you. And it's not a crime to use the same kick sample on more than one track or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yes, not um, at all. Not at all. And actually this talk of stripping away your tools and focusing your energy uh, leads nicely on to our interviewee this week, which is Laura Bettinson who used to perform under the name Femme in what was a one-woman pop powerhouse project, but who has recently relaunched under the name Laura, uh, releasing mad and wicked house dance tunes this last year or so. Yeah, really cool kind of bass-led Yeah, uh, and it was fact she talks about how she just, she's stripped it right back to maybe three or four samples that she's just like, this is what I start with and I know that this is my palette. That was really inspiring to me and it reminded me of how I used to work, just having like a couple of kits that I went to on Ultrabeat and I didn't really stray from them for like dozens of dozens of tracks. Hearing her talk about it in the interview, I found it really inspiring and I think it's just a really brave decision and it just shows a real knowledge of yourself Yeah, to just be like, this is who I want, this is what I want to sound like and I've got other things to do than scrolling through a thousand kick drum sounds. It was just a great example of less is more and that came up, that kind of concept came up quite a lot in this interview, I think. Yeah. Limiting choices, limiting palette limiting things that are, that are that you're thinking about in the creative process so you can be a bit more instinctive i really love this interview i took a lot from it and i was really inspired by how laura, laura worked and her attitude and and i really think she's nailed a sound with her new project and hearing her how she went about that was was really interesting and really inspiring so i we we really hope you enjoy the interview and thank you to laura for her time right should we get to the interview yes please let's do it Laura Bettinson exploded onto the scene in 2013 under the name Femme. Writing, producing and creating all her own material, the project released a series of albums and EPs over the next five years. Alongside this, she was providing vocals for Ultra Easter, a project that was started by Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich with Beck drummer Joey Warrenaker. More recently, she's reinvented herself as Laura, a creator of minimal, wonky house bangers. And the reinvigoration of her creativity that this shift has brought is where we started our chat. You've always had such a strong dance element to your music, but in recent years, your output shifted to be way more squarely aimed at the dance floor. How, how have you found that transition and, and why did you make it? I made that transition for a number of reasons, really. Um, one of them being I was quite frustrated in pop world, like alternative pop world. I found that 
when I would explain to people in the industry, labels and things like that, that I was a self-producing artist but happened to be making pop music, it was always met with quite confused faces. Um, I think uh, especially because the way I kind of visually branded my project, it was kind of people assumed it was on a major label and things like that. And when you talk to people from those kind of worlds, they'd be like, no, but you obviously don't want to produce your music, do you? You should be like in these writing rooms and working with these producers and this hot producer, blah, blah, blah. And so I was kind of like, well, actually, like the process of sitting down and like chopping a loop apart and like building a beat and is as important to me as, uh, you know, like getting dressed up in a sparkly costume and singing it to a room full of people. And I never really wanted that to be taken away. And then weirdly, as I started making more electronic music and kind of just stepping further into my role as a producer rather than a singer necessarily, um, I just found that the electronic scene like totally embraced me and kind of celebrated my role as a self-producing artist rather than, well, like, slightly terrified about it. I suppose dance music has that history sort of of producers both being kind of in the front of the mic and being behind the desk as and when because of DJ culture and all those things. Whereas, I, I mean, I was a big fan of Femme, but it wasn't until I really researched. You produced that whole record. Yeah, I always did. I produced all the music from the very beginning, yeah. Yeah, and in a pop world, that's maybe not your immediate association. Has the dance world just been a bit more welcoming to that kind of step? Yeah, way more welcoming. And, and there's, you know, there's, I guess I would look up to artists like, you know, Floating Points and Fortet and Burial and, you know, people like that, that are, it is part and parcel of what they do. You know, they are producers and artists first and then the DJing thing is like a way of that, like showing the music that they've been making or whatever. Mm. And I, that definitely resonated with me. And uh, strangely, I have found that I sing less intentionally on my music to be like taken more seriously as a producer. Okay. I do feel like I have I have had to do that. <laughs> that was a conscious decision for you to not sing on on this project. Yeah, kind of because as soon as I sing on something I find that people assume somebody else has made the track. Wow, yeah, okay. Because they can't see the they can't see the process necessarily. I mean, I'm quite open about my process on Instagram and, and things like that and I try and share like things in the making or whatever but for some reason as soon as you sing on something people just are enchanted by the voice and kind of forget all about the track it's weird with you talking about the, the way you presented yourself in femme like you did such a good job on the visual side of things and, and the, the brand was so strong i can see why people would assume that you were on a major already and and stuff like that it's, it's weird that that was almost detrimental in some areas yeah absolutely and, and one of the main reasons why I stepped further into dance was the opportunity to DJ and actually make money from shows. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was like, especially like you've built an alternative pop project and we were just getting to the point where we were selling, you know, not loads of tickets, but you know, maybe a few hundred, 500 tickets in London or something, but like, yeah. and then getting asked to do these support shows for big pop stars. But it's like the production, the expectation of the pop production was far outweighed by the actual amount of money that we were making you know and I was just mm. it was just hemorrhaging money and I was like whoa and then as soon as I started DJing I was like oh this is exactly the same feeling for me like I can play the songs that I made in the afternoon in the studio play them to a load of people that have never heard them before and, and watch them connect with it yes in a different way it's it's physical and it's dancing rather than them singing the lyrics back to you but uh, it was it completely like scratched the same uh, itch itch the same scratch scratch the same itch for me yeah um instantly and so i was like oh that's not such a big change i thought i would miss singing on stage but i, I don't 
that much. Do you miss singing on your tracks then? That must have been quite a hard decision to make, no? Not really, no, because I'm still doing a lot of singing for other DJs. Does that help you now that you're producing vocalists on your tracks? Do you have that empathy or sympathy or do you try and bring that knowledge of, I just spent two days tracking vocals with this guy, now I'm going to spend two days tracking this girl's vocals? As a producer, do you, does that help build that relationship with vocalists, do you think? Um, I definitely think I have the benefit of having been, say, a, a vocalist or an artist being produced by somebody else and knowing what that experience is like. Sometimes, you know, when you see things going a certain way, you're like, oh, <laughs> how do I, <laughs> yeah. oh, how, do, how do you like, you know, make, make sure it kind of goes the right way rather than kind of goes off in a different direction. So I've had those experiences and I always are quite conscious when I'm working with vocalists on on tracks together um that you know to just look behind your shoulder and make sure that they're enjoying themselves still you know things mm. that is actually really important and usually if I'm doing vocals with somebody um the the person is right up with me at the desk and uh we're just it's just I'm not I'm not a particularly like disciplined producer in terms of tracking stuff like I'm I was usually so many of those vocals that are on my tracks have been done on like you know 57 like that was just meant to be a guide vocal but for whatever yeah. reason it was just the right vibe and it was like hard to capture that again so I don't really fuss too much over the discipline of I need to track this properly in this way blah 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 um because it kind of doesn't kill the energy you know and that's kind of mm. always been my intention with the songs that I've been releasing as Laura it's like all of those songs are just meant to be fun and energetic and like just give you some rocket fuel, basically. When you tracked the femme vocals, was that a similar feeling or did you feel like I'm making a pop record? I got to have this vocal chain and I need to darken the room and set the candles. Or were you still just kind of in your own world doing it that way? I think I was still in my own world. I was obviously also a much less experienced producer and also vocalist and weirdly when you're producing your own vocal I found that maybe it was through self-conscious that I just track I just stack them like so mm. <laughs> and it and that kind of became the sound actually on that femme record it was kind of girl groupy like there was like six vocals all at one time kind of thing and it kind of became like it formed the sound for that record so that was fine but um Weirdly, yes, now I've moved away from that and I'm singing less on my own records. I, I have so much more fun pulling apart other people's vocals in ways that I probably wouldn't have done with my own because I'm physically attached to it or emotionally attached to my own voice in some ways. I don't, I don't know. You had great success as a vocalist last year on Heart Attack with Bronson um, and that's been a big hit on streaming. And then you're going from vocaling that to producing a banger like Wicked with an up-and-coming vocalist like Lisa Legstina. And I think it's fascinating to see you wear those two hats so close together. Do you try and draw on that experience of having been the person who's expected to give a performance when you're now on the other side of that virtual glass, as it were, trying to get someone to give a performance and give the best of themselves? For sure. Um, I mean, I guess in so many ways, the actual process of making those two songs like Heart Attack and Wicked was not that different like they were made largely me on my own you know I've never met Bronson the guys that I did I tracked the vocals Ah, okay yeah I tracked it remotely here in this studio um and I just sent it to them and we kind of did you know six seven emails back and forth until the track was finished um and weirdly with Wicked it's kind of the same Elisa came in she was here for about an hour and I had like the basics of the track and she just 
blasted like several verses. I've got, I could probably make five versions of Wicked out of all the stuff she left me with. But um, she just blasted that a couple of verses out. And, um, and then I was like, cool, like, <laughs> that's it. Like, I just need some time now to just sit on my own and just dissect that whole thing and, and pull the hooks out of it and the bits I want to keep. And, uh, and I had to do that really on my own because it would just have been really boring for her <laughs> to yeah, be here. to sit there while you did it, yeah. Yeah, and so in some ways that they kind of, I don't see them, the process of doing that that differently because it is just usually it's me making the creative decisions on my own. Um, they're two very different pieces of music, obviously, but... Um, yeah, it's interesting. When you describe it like that, I can see the kind of more the parallels because with the heart attack, actually, if you're on your own and you're like, right, I can craft this and take my time. And then once she's given you that, which sounds like it just kind of fell out of a clear blue sky, and then you get to do the same process on it. Yeah, so. exactly. And I guess it is, I do feel sometimes that I'm splitting myself, like with the top line work, obviously that's a very different sound as a, as a vocalist to the kind of raw, in-your-face, banging beats that I'm making. But I, I think it's about carving out a sonic identity for both. In some ways, you know, I'm I'm more conscious of that now as a vocalist because the the collaborations are getting much more high profile. I'm like, and especially because that Heart Attack song's been quite popular. I was like, great. Well, I'll just stick with that style then, you know. And it was kind of <laughs> yeah. it was kind of easier for me as a as a quite a versatile vocalist. Actually, like pre this whole time, I've been like, you can get quite separated as as a vocal you know you can end up singing lots of mm. different styles and you're like hell what is my style especially mm -hmm. having done femme before that which was quite a different vocal style to to that um to to the heart attack tune but in some ways because that just went all right in all the right places and it was very easy to put together as a track i was like cool i'm just going to do a load more stuff like that the music you've been making with Laura is really focused and, and has in a short space of time really defined its own sound. Did you just take some time after Femme finished to think hard about what the next step was going to be or did it just come quite naturally once you started making new tunes? It was actually like quite a transformative um, like trip to Mexico that I had, uh, Mexico and Miami in 2000 and it must have been 2018. So, yeah, something like that. Maybe it was 2019. Um, and I, I've always had one foot in dance music anyway as a vocalist. Like, even as Femme, I was like, I'd vocal tracks on by Forte and Sasha and Justin Martin and done like, you know, I've always had one foot in dance music as a vocalist, but never as a producer. And then I went on this trip. I think it started with South by Southwest and it ended, well, in the middle it was Mexico and then it ended in um, uh, Miami Music Week, which is obviously a massive dance kind of... Sure. conference thing and I met some friends there that I've obviously vocaled on their tracks like Justin Martin and I would just see these guys DJing and it just looked like so much fun and <laughs> I was like shit I want to give that a go like I just came back from that tri that trip and I was like pretty sure I could make beats like that um and I just started to try and like do that basically from mm. just being inspired by wow that looks like a really good way of kind of traveling the world having a load of fun um, playing the music that you're creating in your studio to a load of people. And I was like, mm, I think I want to give that a go. So I literally did come back from that trip and I was like, right, where to start? <laughs> where to start? Let's like, and, and I definitely did have my in inspirations, you know, like on a lot of the songs that I've made, you can probably hear like Mr. Wazzo, yeah. um, that kind of old um, French electro uh, influence. Um, and d uh, like producers like Chris Lake, 
um, who's obviously a big, big tech house DJ and producer, and uh, Chris Lorenzo, so like the kind of UKG, um, new kind of new school UKG sound, mm. and Claude Von Stroke and all the Dirty Bird label. Like, I love that stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm, I really like the Dirty Bird label and Claude Von Stroke. Exactly, was, yeah. yeah. That was a, That's also a big influence, and I know some of those guys personally. So I was just like, just the music was really fun, and also I enjoyed how minimal it was having come from kind of a pop world where you just feel like you kind of you throw the kitchen sink at a song Mm. like I was really enjoying like watching these people DJ and the songs were so simple but the elements were all so considered that just the physical reaction from people instantly to tunes they've never heard before was really inspiring and I was like Mm. I want to make some tunes like this so so DJing directly inspired you making this music like how did it inform how you actually put the music together and the decisions you made when you were producing. I mean, it kind of changed my whole production process in a way of I would build a track using the sounds and, say, certain samples that I loved and sat in the right place in the mix. And then I will usually always now try and take as much of that out. Right, uh-huh. yeah, Like, yeah, even yeah. if the so- even once the song, you know, it's kind of finished, you're like, oh, that's all right. And then I'll, like, actually, as a process, I'll spend some time seeing how many of those, like, little percussive things I can take out until the track still stands on its own, you know? Mm. Um, and I enjoy that process, and I, li- I like those restrictions. You know, I, I don't really have a lot of gear. I work largely in a laptop. But give me a laptop and a USB controller and, you know, a set of samples, and I can make you a banging tune, but... You know, I don't, um, I don't need a lot of stuff, but it's uh, the process for me is definitely like manipulating those sounds and and finding the right ones that work for that for that track. And now, I just basically have a set of sampled um, like template that I work off because it's great for me and I love that. I'm just like, well, that, those samples were, you know, like Sideways was the first single I put out this time last year actually, and that went down really well and got a lot of support on the radio. And I was like perfect i'll just use that same <laughs> kick sound and that same hi-hat sound that same snare and i kind of have done that for every track since and it really helped me just like make those decisions sonically like perfect great give me a te- give, me, uh, give me that template that i created myself and i'll just use them they don't always end up in the songs but it's usually my starting point you know so how did you find those initial samples? Just searching it, searching through things, you know, as you do. I think my favourite kick is a kick called Holden 04, which is based on a James Holden kick, but I use that bub, I use that bubble in every tune. And uh-huh. uh, the snare that I use is a, from a Claude Von Stroke sample pack, I think off Splice or something. And, yeah. uh, you know, I have my favourite kind of packs that I go to. Flavor yeah. D's one's really good. That came out recently on Splice. Um, and so I kind of go through and find my like favorite little one shot things. And usually if I'm starting something from scratch, um, I'll start with those. Do you find that kind of opens you up to just let your creation of what you want to make go rather than I'm sure with the Femme album, there was times where you're like, I'm going to spend four days finding this keyboard sound or this won't be the song it needs to be. And now it's like, I've got this and I can let this flow from kind of my head to my fingertips. Yeah, absolutely. And in some ways... It's a lot less musical, which I find very freeing because I'm not a particularly trained musician. You know, I, I can sing and uh, I learned piano as a kid and I played the flute to, you know, a certain grade because I was made <laughs> to by my parents. But I definitely don't have, you know, immaculate music theory by any means. Um, so actually making this kind of music where I'm purposefully, I love like the unexpected drops and the kind of the weird they're not necessarily musical all the time you know you can't pin them down um and I like that 
um, and I find that quite freeing. Whereas with femme stuff, I would just I'd be a frustrated musician trying to figure out, oh, I want to put this chord there, but I have no fucking idea how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> what about bass? Like, do you have a go-to synth for your bass sounds? Because like you've got some wicked sounds, like on on the on on the track Wicked. That, that's an amazing. Yeah, that is a bass. good bass sound. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have some synths, some actual synths, like um, that I've borrowed and begged and stolen over the years. So. Uh, I've got a, like a little mini log that I use a lot that just sits on my desk and I do use that. Um, and a Yamaha CS5 that I use for some bass sounds. Um, but a lot of my bass sounds are just a combination of different samples, um, to be honest. Like right. l like from all different places, like packs and that you wouldn't even expect me to be using, but they're like, you know, stretched and pitched and manipulated. Mm. Um, and that's usually kind of where I start it doesn't always end up like that I'll use like you know I use massive occasionally and serum um and contact and uh, monarch a lot in uh, oh, reactor yeah. so yeah. those are my kind of go-to soft synths um but yeah nice. a lot of the time I'm kind of like finding odd bloom sounds and shit like that just to try and kind of spark something you talked about that process of, of stripping stuff away once you'd once you'd got all your sounds together why is that important and is it just a case of less is more? I just, I like the audacity of being still having a banging tune with not that much going on. <laughs> like, mm. I, li yeah. I like the ballsiness of that. Just like, yeah, it's just one kick, one snare, and one bass sound, but it's still making you like feel something. And I, I like mm. that kind of challenge of that. When you're producing those tunes, are you sort of think, is there that relief of going, I'm really into this and I don't have to think about what the top line's going to be? Or are you going, I've got an idea for this top line, but that's not what I'm doing here. I'm getting someone in, like, shut that part of my brain down. Or is it like, brilliant, this bangs, the next job is someone else's? Uh, yeah, absolutely that. And I love that. I find it so freeing not having to think about, say, the... And to be honest, I don't know if my vocal would suit a lot of the actual tracks that I'm making, you know? Like, my vocal's quite um uh, like vulnerable in some ways i don't know and kind of quite clean i don't know it's it's not necessarily the right voice for my tracks how do you approach a remix differently from your own stuff or do you just go that's the top line i'm working with and i'm this is my vibe um kind of not differently actually in in many ways i usually if it's got a vocal i will hone in on that first and we'll chop the bits out of it, the hooks out of it that I know I'm gonna keep. And that is usually my approach, even when I have a rapper come in and do stuff for myself. It's, you know, I don't rarely, very rarely use the whole verse. I'll go in and I kind of, it's the process of chopping that bit up, chopping that bit, putting that bit back to back and kind of restructuring the whole thing. And I kind of do the same thing with a remix, um, just choose my the favorite bits that I wanna use first. And then uh, I very rarely use that many of the original stems. I kind of just bin the whole lot usually. Not always, but um, <laughs> it's not usually a, not usually a lot of their original track by the time I'm finished with it. Um. In Ultraista, your your voice is much more exposed, and and that whole project is a very different thing musically to what you're doing. Could you talk us through like that whole experience of working with Nigel and, and Joey? Yeah, uh, so Ultraista, yeah, that's the band that we started in. Well, we actually probably started the band in 2009 or something after I graduated uni, but we didn't oh, put wow. out our first album till 2012. And then we just put out a second album last year, just as the pandemic hit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Wicked. <laughs> yeah. I, I listened to it a lot this last week or two. I kind of wish I'd had it at the beginning of the pandemic. It would have been just like a nice, it, it's got, 
it's hopeful, but it's also quite paranoid in, in mm. ways. It's quite a nice lockdown record. I recommend it. Yeah, we got a lot of messages from fans in the first lockdown that were like, oh, my God, this is such a tonic for, like, this crazy mm. shit that's happening. And I was like, oh, I'm really glad. Like, I'm glad that people are... In some ways, it was kind of... It was awful timing for that record because, obviously, we wanted to tour it and you, we, sure. we haven't played together for, like, seven years or something. So we were all really looking forward to doing some shows. So in some mm. ways, it was awful timing. But in other ways, like, I think it was kind of perfect timing for a record like that because everybody just was just listening to it mainly, you know, on headphones, on their own, in their houses. Mm. Um, so it was kind of perfect setting for that music. Um, but that experience of that band, it's very different, complete, draws a completely different side of me uh, out as an artist and vocally as well, uh, working yeah. with Nigel. And put it this way, I love it. And I'm also really glad I have my own stuff as a release from it. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I've never been in bands as a, as a kid, particularly growing up. You know, I was just always... So I just my journey into music was as a solo artist. Um, so I've always had so much control over everything. Then to jump into a band like that with obviously a very very established producer and also drummer in Joey, uh, completely different kind of stages of their career. It was uh, just a completely different experience and not a bad one, but just very very different. I'd imagine for a vocalist who was kind of in a similar stage of their career to go in and work with someone like Nigel, there would be a certain amount of maybe fear is the wrong word, but trepidation that that was kind of one of your first experiences. How did you deal with kind of being in that space and trusting yourself to deliver and, and be yourself and be creative in that space? When I first got involved in that project, I honestly had no idea who I was in a room with. Was that possibly quite helpful? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was in some ways. And because uh, like I had an older sister growing up and so I'd get a lot of my music from her. But for whatever reason, and I don't know why, Radiohead just weren't part of it. You know, I'd get handed yeah. down placebo and Smashing Pumpkins and Hole and all these things. And, but like Radiohead just didn't figure. Um, so it never, I'd never really, in all honesty, other than the big, big kind of creep and, you know, the hits for them, I was not yeah. really that aware of who they were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> until I walked into, like, Nigel's studio one afternoon in Covent Garden that was obviously, like, massive, like, white spaceship. And I was like, whoa, uh, this is... It's like, <laughs> who did you say you were again? Yeah, I was yeah. like, this guy's yeah. probably a big deal. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so how did you get involved with, with that project then, if it, if it wasn't...? Uh, it was it... kind of random in some ways. I think... Um, Nigel and Joey had made a load of instrumentals that it turned out they were looking for a singer um, to come and join the, the the project. And his manager at the time had gotten hold of or just um, gotten on the wind that I was like, say I was at Goldsmiths at the time and I was doing like a solo show around like, you know, the little pubs in London, like the old Queen's Head and Lexington and things like that. Um, and I would do like a loop station show and I was just like pulling loops off looperman.com and I would like build my, <laughs> build my tracks on like four loop patches. Um, and I was just making really bonkers, silly stuff. Um, but this got the attention of Nigel's manager. And with this current record, did you, obviously now that you produce yourself and you have this background to behind you was it a case of like Nigel I'll, I've got this now I'll I've track it or did the three of you get together and kind of build it a bit more organically on this on this one or was it yeah did, kind did, of did your role process? change I guess is, on this yeah. album the, the latest yeah on the latest run uh, yeah. yeah it absolutely did change actually I had 
I know it's me singing on everything, but I actually had, I was less involved with the writing in some ways. There's a lot more of um, Nigel writing on this album than there was on the first album. I think on the first album, we would just say we didn't know each other that well and we were just wanting to make some cool sounding shit. And I think we achieved that. Um, but we were just, you know, there wasn't that much thought to it. Whereas on this album, it was a little bit more considered. Um, Nigel wanted to write more songs. You know, that was definitely a focus of like, wanted to write um, song structures and, and something that, um, you know, repeated and something that kind of emo maybe emotionally connects a, a bit more than uh, than the first record did so in some ways I had less to do on this album um rather I was channeling kind of Nigel's writing a lot of the time I was just thinking about how kind of on that the, you were saying how when you made that first record with them you were kind of maybe just out of art college making this crazy music kind of just finding your way fast forward 10 years you've released records that you've produced yourself written yourself when you were making this record, did you kind of go into this one going, I'm just going to have a look over Nigel's shoulder a little bit? Or did you just shut that part of your brain down and go, I'm jamming, I'm creating, I'm singing? Um, I mean, not in some ways, no, because Nigel is so protective over his process. It's I never wanted that to interfere with sure. our kind of relationship creatively, of you know, and it was quite, and it is definitely like, it's one of those things that could be quite easily ruined, I think, in some ways, if I was kind of, you know, looking for production tips alongside trying to make an album. So I was always very, um, I, I've probably learned more, though, in terms of my, uh, my voice, definitely, because okay. Nigel just for what uh, you know he's not an easy I didn't find him an easy person to track vocals with because he's quite um relentless you know and I'm I'm sure. quite lazy actually in some ways okay. as a producer I just like to like bash things down I'm like yeah that'll do great um uh, you know, I, I, I can resonate with that yeah <laughs> yeah I don't like I don't finesse I don't go over I don't do 30 takes of one word in some some times on that album we would do several several takes of literally one word wow and uh that was quite an exhausting process but I also l learned a lot of discipline and I started to learn uh, about my voice and about performance and kind of taking a lot of uh technique that I you kind of as a vocalist I mean I learned to sing from imitating other pop stars you know that's kind of how I learned my pitch and things like that mm. or just sing mm. along to other people's records but actually it was interesting working with Nigel because he'd be like sing less <laughs> sing less less bib, less bib less that whatever you're doing don't do that blah 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 and I would be like whoa you know so I kind of learned this whole other side of my voice which was very very controlled in a way and kind of had quite flat line um which is kind of everything you don't do instinctively as a vocalist, um, but it was a really interesting process. <laughs> you've featured with some amazing people. Obviously, you've worked with Nigel, Fortet's remixed your work. Is there anyone that now you're kind of in that chair as a vocalist or an MC or someone that you're just like, if I can get them on one of my beats, that would be a big tick in my box? Yeah, I mean, I actually, I love the excitement of working with kind of unknown artists in many ways like and I've really enjoyed that because you get that like kind of the the enthusiasm as well and like the hunger and it's been so much fun working with the, the kind of the four 
uh, people that I've worked with so far on my singles. So there's a couple of other people. There's an amazing rapper called Sophie Grophy in Australia, and I would love to get her on one of my tunes. Um, so hopefully that would happen. We can at one we can point. tag her in this episode. Yeah, Sophie, like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> do some A&R for you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean this you know could do something amazing with young fathers you know as well like you know it would be great to have some male vocals actually as well um because i don't find myself working that often with uh well actually that's a lie i've got something on the go at the minute with a, with a man's voice on it which is kind of great so uh, we were wondering yeah. if that was a conscious thing to like keep it to women on your records or not no definitely not a conscious thing um really i just think it's the people you attract for whatever reason um and that seems to say be where i've kind of people that come to me with femme you were the producer but i suppose in in a way in your mind it was like i'm doing this because the means to the end is i want to create this art for for myself as a singer has there been a moment where you've gone oh god i'm a i'm a producer now yeah i mean not not particularly because i'm still very much a self-producing artist you know that's how i would describe myself i very very rarely am producing for a third party project Sometimes I do like writing camps or whatever, and that's probably the only circumstance where I'll go and co-write with other artists for their projects. I don't find myself doing a lot of that, and I obviously do remixes for other artists and stuff. But um, so in some ways, I haven't had that moment of like, oh, how did <laughs> uh, here I am, and I'm a producer because I always it feels so embedded in me as an artistic project um, that. Yeah, it, it, does, it doesn't feel like it's been that much of a, a transition in some ways. Um, the, D, the DJing thing is definitely a bit different. That's like, well, I'm a DJ now. That's, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> That's And I'm, I've still got a lot to learn on that. I mean, I'm having loads and loads of fun, but like, you know, people DJ for like 20 years and still fuck up. So you're like, well, yeah, 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 So producing other artists isn't something you're looking to do or you, could you see yourself doing it further down the line or, or what? Uh, maybe, but I don't think, because my, don't know, because my style of production is so very much, I almost think of myself as an editor in ways, you know, I'm, it's so to do with the nitty gritty of like pulling samples apart and loops apart and pitching them and manipulating them. Like, I don't feel in some ways that would be that complementary to working with a lot of other artists on their own projects necessarily because you, you, you've always produced your own music but have you always seen yourself as a producer if... mm, in some ways no because the role of producer in pop was a little bit more uh mysterious to me yes <laughs> yes like, yeah, yeah, yeah you know whereas in dance music it's always I don't know, maybe it's also the sound of the music. Like, it's so digital in many ways. Like, mm -hmm. you know it's been kind of built yeah. um, in some ways. Whereas pop, you know, a lot of the pop music I liked, it was more like, hmm, okay, I don't know how they've made that sound or I don't know what that process is or I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, so maybe I didn't. I saw myself more as a songwriter that could record themselves. Um, but then as I kind of came towards the end of Femme, I was, I was starting to mess around more in kind of electronic structures and really enjoying not kind of writing songwriting structures uh, and kind of found that very freeing. So I was already kind of moving in that direction. And then yeah, I you can really hear that sound coming on, on tracks like Angel. Yeah, and Be Shy and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, it was kind of, mm. that was kind of my last couple of releases where I was like, cool, I think I'm ready to take this leap now, you know. 
Shakespeare once said that music is the food of love. But what is the food of music? As much as the right microphone or guitar amp, what we eat or drink can be such a crucial part of a recording session. So each week we like to ask our guests, what do they cook or order to get the mood right in the studio? Mm, very good. I mean, so I was lucky enough to spend like six weeks in China in 2019, um, part of a British Council like residency. I was there as a, wow. an artist in residence. I was six weeks on my own, don't speak any Mandarin. It was an amazing experience, but also just kind of weirdly like a life-changing experience. And so there I was based in uh, Chengdu, which is in the Sichuan um, area. And ever since then, it kind of completely... I mean, that area is known for its cuisine and very, yeah. very, very, very spicy food. And so I kind of came back having learned a few tips and tricks. And, and I suppose my go-to dish ever since that trip has been um, like this spicy uh, Sichuan tofu dish. And uh, that's my go-to for everyone, basically, that comes around the house. Nice. That sounds great. Yeah. I think that's the best answer we've had. So what's your favourite reverb? Uh, the Valhalla uh, vintage verb. Yeah, me too. What's your favourite delay? Oh, my God. It'll probably, probably my go-to is the isotope dynamic delay or whatever. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, can I just follow up on that as well, though? Because I've, I've got that one and I've never like found... I, I couldn't quite figure out what, why, what made it special or different than other delays. Like, how do you use it? Can you... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I just like, like to like filter the delay or whatever. Um, and the intensity button's quite good. You can make it like, you know, really full on or not. But um, that tends to be my go-to if I'm just looking for a nice delay. If I'm looking for more of an effect... Um, it would be uh, the Echo Boy from Sound Toys. Right, yeah, more great. Of a kind of creative delay. What's your favourite compressor? Uh, physical, I've obviously got to say the 1176. I mean, I'm not rich enough to have one of those in my studio, but <laughs> but my husband has one and occasionally I'll, I'll run through <laughs> some stems and make them sound good. Um, so obviously I have to say that. But um, like my go-to plug-in um, compressor is the Soft Tube FET thing. Uh, favourite synth? Um, I mean... I'm from a synth pop band, so I should probably say the Prophet um, Five or whatever we used all over um, the old Trista songs. But I don't. Again, I don't really have. I don't have one of those. Yeah. My go-to synth is my Mini Log Korg Mini Log, and I bought that because it fit in the suitcase and it costs like four hundred dollars or something. It's really affordable. So I think they're really cool. I think they're really, yeah, cool, really especially versatile for, for the price. Yeah. Um, and then the last one of the Fast Five is your favorite microphone. Hmm. I mean, my like my nice mic that I do my vocals on is a Blue Bottle Rocket uh, Stage One, I think it's called, um, and that's the mic I did all the vocals on for Heart Attack and say a lot of my top line work. I always do that on them. What is the most important tool at your disposal as a producer? Hmm. I mean, conceptually, it would be my willingness to kind of. Uh, not get f hooked on the gear I'm really not bothered about gear but it's I find I find that quite freeing you know it's uh just give me the minimum bare minimum and I'll try and make a tune out of it and uh, I find that quite a like an exciting exhilarating challenge um so it'd be that but then I guess on the other side in an actual kind of practical way it's obviously my laptop like I do everything on, my, on this laptop um and uh that's it probably no we yeah. yeah cool we like the conceptual answers that's they're, they're always they're always good That's one of my favourite interviews that we've done. I took a, mm. a lot from that. Laura's 
career path is fascinating. She's got so many strings to her bow and her ability and comfort to change lanes and stay true to her artistic self is really inspiring to me. But I also took a lot from that thing of when she was in Femme and she was doing so much work, writing, producing, managing everything. And, and I've been in projects like that where it just consumes you. And then her ability to just shed that skin, take stock and then find this new sound and this new way of working and just having an unashamed vision for it and an unashamed process that's so unique to her that she's found. I found that so inspiring. Yeah, it was really interesting how she had such a clear mind when making these decisions and, and kind of thought about it very cerebrally. Mm. You think of artists being kind of at the whims of their muses, but she just was like, no, this makes sense for me. I think this is going to be where I'm going to get the most out of my creativity. And, and that was really interesting to hear. We've talked in some of these interviews with other producers and, and they've alluded to it themselves about the man behind the curtain or this deep well of knowledge that producers have. And Laura has a deep well of knowledge because she's performed and created some amazing music. But with her production, she almost moved away from that and went, no, this is what my knowledge is. She says, my biggest strength is that I don't love gear. My biggest strength yeah. is what I don't know. Or inversely, that I know what I know and I, I'm confident in it. Really inspiring, really, really inspiring if you're starting out as a producer to just be like, no, your artistic vision and what you want to sound like is more important than a thousand hours of programming a synthesizer yeah. or setting the ratio on a compressor, I guess, or can be. There were so many examples of less is more in this interview or in Laura's creative process. And yeah, one of them is I'm going to use less tools mm -hmm. to create my work. And I think that's a good example to everyone that you don't need every single bit of gear in the world to, to do your thing. Like she said, she could basically just do it with a computer. And if you listen to her productions as Laura, they're so yeah. unique. Yeah. The sounds, the vocals. It's a really special sound she's making. Well, what's also less is more is they're very sparse productions. She, mm. she talked about the process of taking things out, yes. which I think is a very important one and a satisfying one in, in a lot of creative process. And it comes from a dance music headspace, but it works across all productions. I think like, so. Is this doing a job? get it out if i was the kind of producer who had uh, slogans written on the walls then less is more would be in my studio and the way she referred to herself i think this is probably the headline for me is like i'm not a producer i'm an editor yes i love that particularly when she's also the creator that self-discipline is really important and I, I i've made a note of that in my notebook as you say yeah maybe not a slogan on my wall but refer to that over and over yes thinking about yourself as as the editor as a producer is really cool and that's a really good way to describe her process cutting things, selecting things. The producer as editor is a really interesting concept. Another takeaway I took from the interview, which I think is really important for your, your headspace as a creative, she's fully immersed in making this dance music under her new moniker, but she's also understanding that she has other creative itches that she likes to scratch, singing with Ultraista, writing with other dance acts and, and bringing her top-lining ability. And these things keep her sane in other ways. And I think that's a lesson I am trying to internalize. You want to be at your computer or in your studio grinding on this tune or grinding on this project. But remember the other things that you did that you enjoyed in music, whether that's sitting and, and learning a piece at the piano or helping another artist top line something. A, it's going to increase your possibility to get releases and, and exciting things like that. But it's also just going to nourish your creativity and your soul in that way. And she's really found that balance now. That track she talked about, um, Beat Freak with Chris Lake, is out now. It wasn't out when we did the interview. That's right. So. It came out in late March and it is a yeah. banger. Sick. Yeah. Sick tune. I think it's also worth going over what she talked about, um, being faced with 
resistance in the pop world mm. when trying to be a self-producing artist. Having thought about it since then, I wonder if there's a bit of sexism going on there. Because I don't know if a male artist going into meetings with labels and say, I produce all my own stuff, would be met with that same resistance. You think about artists like Jack Garrett. Jacob Collier. Yeah, it's quite a common thing for the male pop artists to be marketed as uh, these sort of polymath, multi-instrumental producer yes. guys. Yes. But I, I just wonder if people looked at Laura and didn't see that because, because of some ingrained sexism. I know that Bjork's often talked about how she co-produces all her albums. And whenever she gets interviewed about it, they ask her about, oh, you're, you know, your producer. And she's like, no, I'm the producer. And all my records are amazing. And yeah. each one is produced by a different person and me. So what's the common thread? Why aren't you talking to me about it? Um, <laughs> and I think yeah. that's in completely fair. And I didn't think the Femme albums were produced by her, possibly because of that mindset of, oh, when a female pop artist comes yeah. out, they're put with the producer who makes their sound. And and that's perhaps a kind of unthinking sexism on my part. Yeah. Uh, and if not specifically sexism, it certainly reflects a knowledge of a trend in the music industry that maybe is sexist, yeah. you know, of the silent tech genius who is male yeah. and the artistic vocalist who doesn't bother with that kind of stuff and just sings who is female and, and this. Mm. Hundreds of artists you can think of who tick those boxes. And you hope we are moving to a world where these tropes are being pulled down, but it's probably a lot further away than we'd like to think it is. And Laura didn't phrase it like that. She talked about it more as a genre thing, but... I would I would agree with you and and it's I probably you know we can't quite even understand the lim the levels of it but yeah I definitely think there's probably a part of that in there there were some other practical concerns about sort of dance act versus pop act and one of them that's quite interesting is just you can actually make money playing live as a dance act. I'm laughing because Femme were out and touring at the same time as, as my band Citizens. And we would regularly turn up mm. at festivals in France, full backline rented, five guys, tour manager, mm. hotel rooms, sound checks for mm -hmm. hours. And then you play for 30 minutes and your tour manager's like, yeah, I think we made about 50 quid by the end of that. And there'd just be two, often, yeah. unfortunately, two guys sitting side of stage waiting to rock on with two memory sticks. They'd wave, the crowd would go freaking mental. They'd plug their memory stick in, hit play on a CDR and play a tune yeah. that they'd mixed in their studio and sounded amazing through the speakers like that. And they've made three and a half thousand euros. And Laura's had that revelation and she's lent into it. I, I feel like it's just the live circuit for pop acts and kind of and all and all kind of other indie pop acts and so on. It's almost unsustainable, Such isn't it? Such a tough in, world, in, yeah. In, in, in a sense, and like it's a very different beast than DJing at a club. And I think they're both real can be really amazing experiences for artist and and crowd member. It's just such a shame there's a bit of a sort of discrepancy with how sustainable one of them is. We've both been in pop acts and, and seen how hard it is, even if you are selling a few tickets, to make it make any financial sense whatsoever. Mm. I, I, also, I like Laura talking about how... I, she was being a bit self-deprecating, I think, but describing her workflow as sometimes a bit lazy, like she doesn't like to labour over stuff. And I think that's a perfectly valid... I think it's an incredibly valid choice, and I think it's... Um, again, it speaks to her self-knowledge of she sat there with Nigel Godrich to many people's minds, you know, the producer in the world. Yeah. One of the greats. And yeah. gone, oh, this guy yeah. spends 10 hours on his vocal takes. A less strong and confident personality must would turn away and go, well, if I want to make music, that's what I must do. And she's like, no, I, yeah. I love how my vocals sound by the desk with the, the SM7. and Yeah, and just keep some of those imperfections or whatever and keep the that relaxed yeah. feel. I, I just got the impression of an artist really at comfort with what she's doing. And that yeah. 
you can't, <laughs> it's a takeaway. You, you earn that and she's earned that through doing all the work that yeah. she's done. But certainly if you're an aspiring artist or you're a producer or just think about that, that, that confidence and that self-knowledge to not, not worry about what you don't know. Yeah, just one final note on the less is more sort of thing. The other thing that, that she limits her options at is the actual palette of sounds that she uses, um, not just the gear, but sort of the samples and stuff. And I, I thought that was really cool as well. And I, I feel like that's almost frowned upon in some quarters to just find something that works and keep reusing it. There's this pressure to, you know, delve into the sound design on every single track. But when you think about how some of the great records have been made in any genre, you find a palette and you stick with it for over a body of work. And that's something that's that's stayed with me because you know, working as a producer over several different projects, it's something I haven't really done recently is just just be comfortable with reusing a good sound across different songs. James Liddell talks about how when he got his first synth, I don't know what, it's an OB or something, yeah. and he turns it on and he just hits it and he's like, oh, that's that sound from that record yeah. I loved. And he assumed these guys have spent years laboring and creating a patch, but what they've done is turned it on Preset and hit it. And gone, one. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> Let, Preset yeah. 01, let's start tracking. And Yeah, because ultimately it's all about the song. I, you, you, I saw an article recently on um, one of the music blogs that was like the 10 greatest synth sounds of all time. And it's like, are they just the 10 best songs that have a synth in? And we think they're the best sounds because they're in such good songs. Song has to come first. Or maybe in dance music, the groove has to come first. Whatever it is you're working to. But yeah. like, just get it yeah. out. Get it down and enjoy yeah, it. I, I think enjoy so. those sounds. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I must say thank you to Laura because I took a lot from that interview and I've already working some of what she talked about into my workflow and, and super liberating conversation. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's been really inspiring. We talked about Beat Freak, which is Laura's tune with Chris Lake and Reva Starr that came out in March and her new single, uh, I'll Wait, which has been part of a curated album, uh, Loser Skura, I think I'm saying that right, um, from Sasha. It's a playlist he has on Spotify. Um, so that came out uh in the middle of April as well. So check both those tunes out. They're brilliant. And um, thanks again for listening to us yeah, this thank week. Thank you very much, guys. See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Process of Production this week. If you enjoyed it, please give us a follow and maybe even a five-star review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on. It really helps. And please get in touch if you have any thoughts on the show, questions you'd like answered, or producers you'd like to see interviewed. We'd love to hear from you. Our Instagram is at process of production and our email is process of production podcast at gmail.com. And our guest next week is George Reed. From producing minimal pop bangers with his duo Aluna George to his more recent work with a Spice Girl. We get the lowdown on his process of production. <laughs>